I want to call your attention now to 1 Peter chapter 4, the first epistle of Peter, the fourth chapter. And we read from this portion a few moments ago, and I want to read two verses now that we will focus upon, verses 17 and 18. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? <coughs> May the Lord bless the reading of his word. These verses challenge our understanding. They present some uh, difficulties. They are verses that are rarely preached on. But I believe there is a message for us. In this, and a message that we all need to hear today. To just uh, refresh in your mind the context here, beginning at verse 12 and moving forward, we see what is Peter's emphasis not only in this section, but really in the whole letter. And that is encouragement to believers who are facing suffering and persecution at the hands of a world that hates Christ and the gospel. The letter as a whole is a call to patience, endurance, obedience, regardless of the cost. Knowing that the glory that is yet to come will more than repay any difficulty and suffering that we presently experience. <clears throat> and so the, the challenge comes here as far as our understanding is concerned in both verses 17 and 18. What is the judgment that must begin? And what is the house of God at which the judgment must begin? And in verse 18, in what way are the righteous scarcely saved? The word scarcely literally means with much difficulty. We might say barely. If the righteous are barely saved, well, in Scripture, salvation is most often represented as something that is, is sure and full and complete. 
Redemption is plenteous, according to Psalm 130. God's grace is abundant and superabundant, according to Romans 5. And God's decree is unfailing and certain. It shall certainly come to pass. <coughs> there is no defect in Christ's atonement. There is nothing short or lacking in it. And so in what sense are believers barely saved? I want to begin by suggesting one perspective on this passage that I think sheds some helpful light on it. And then we will proceed and uh, consider what we may learn in a practical way from this text. It seems to me that Peter has something in mind here that in verse 17 that is specific and immediate to his own time and generation. He says the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And I, I put this forth as a suggestion, and you can think about it and compare it with Scripture and, and see how valid you think that this is. But one or two that I have read after mention this, and I think that there may be some, some good help here, that Peter may be referring to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that Christ foretold in what we call the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> that would take, as far as the immediate matter is concerned, the house of God in verse 17 to be the building of the temple in Jerusalem. We know that the destruction of that building occurred in AD 70. It came at the end of a five month siege of the city by the Romans. <clears throat> but the hostilities between the Jewish people and the Romans in this particular war really began about four years earlier in A.D. 66. And that would correspond precisely to the time frame in which First Peter was written, as best we can discern. And uh, most... Scholars think that Peter's martyrdom occurred no later than A.D. 68. And so the time frame is, is exactly right for Peter 
to possibly be referring here to the destruction that was coming according to the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that Peter heard with his own ears there on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. In that discourse, the Lord Jesus told of the destruction of the temple that would occur in that generation. And though the judgment would be primarily upon the Jewish people as a nation, the discourse, as you recall, was addressed to whom? To Peter and the other disciples who were with the Lord there. The destruction of Jerusalem would have implications for the Christian community. For example, the Lord says there in Matthew 24, verse 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Though the destruction would be by the Romans against the Jews, the Romans would not distinguish between Jewish religionists and followers of Jesus Christ, the Christian community. And the Lord is warning his own disciples of what will come upon them at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. I'll not ask you to turn back there just for the sake of time, but I, I would just refresh in your memory what the Lord says. I'm just going to give a kind of a brief summary here of Matthew 24:15 through about 24. He says, when you see Jerusalem fall, run for your life. Don't try to pack up all your stuff and take it with you. Get out with your life. And the judgment will be shortened, he says, for the sake of God's elect. Otherwise, no one would survive this destruction. And he goes on to say, and again, I just paraphrase here, in the, in the confusion, many false prophets will arise who would, if it were possible, deceive even God's elect. Well, thank God his elect cannot be deceived. That's a great blessing and a great comfort. But the righteous would scarcely be saved in a temporal way. As far as earthly deliverance is concerned, they would barely escape with their lives from this earthly destruction that would come. And the timing of the desolation of Jerusalem coincided with the increasing persecution of Christians all over the Roman Empire. And that's something else to plug into our text here. Because 
there's debate as to exactly where Peter was when he wrote this epistle. He identifies himself at the end there of apparently being at a place he calls Babylon. And, of course, there's different ideas about what he means by Babylon. Is it literal Babylon or is it some figurative Babylon? I'll let you uh, wrestle with that. Wherever Peter was... uh, it, it may not have he may not have been in Jerusalem himself, but there was persecution empire wide against Christians and those who happened to be in and near Jerusalem would just be representative of a much bigger picture throughout the whole Roman world. And so Peter says in so many words, you can see the war ramping up. You can see the hostilities. And you can read in history about the, the, what was going on there between the Jews and the Romans. But it finally culminated in this five-month siege of Jerusalem. And then taking it over and utterly destroying everything there. Which uh, Titus and the Romans accomplished. But as with the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, so with what Peter says here in our text in 1 Peter 4, the events of A.D. 70 would foreshadow the destruction that will occur at the last day. When Christ comes again. And that, of course, is, is part of the, the challenge of interpreting Matthew 24. Perhaps as well as 1 Peter 4. Because in the Olivet Discourse, our Lord seems to move back and forth between describing the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the destruction of the world at the end of time. <clears throat> And he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The Lord is undoubtedly describing his second coming in those terms, in those verses. And so likewise, Peter here is is warning not only of a specific and immediate judgment that was coming maybe in just two or three years' time, But he's also warning of a greater and final and end-time judgment in the lake of fire. So let's read these verses again. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. It begins in in an immediate and temporal way 
at the temple in Jerusalem. In the more long-term way, judgment begins in the spiritual house of God, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it begin first at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Peter says, if believers who obey the gospel suffer in this judgment and destruction that is immediate, what will become of unbelievers who do not obey the gospel? And those he's describing there as not obeying the gospel, in in that first century context, it could be Jewish people, it could be Roman people, it could be anyone who was an unbeliever and who positioned themselves against Christ and his people. And so the parallel to the end times is this. God's people will suffer some in this life, but his enemies will suffer even more hereafter. Judgment begins at us, but it will end in a much greater way with those who are unbelievers. What God's people suffer here is just the beginning. What God's enemies suffer hereafter will be an awful end. And so you may want to look at Matthew 24 more carefully and compare that here with 1 Peter 4 and so on. But I think it's worth mentioning that that Peter could have that in mind in some respects here in our text. But let's hasten on. What is Peter's message for believers today here? What is he telling you and me, believer in Christ? He's telling us in so many words, expect to suffer for Christ. Expect what he calls fiery trials in verse 12. Expect, and and he says there, don't be surprised. Don't think it's a strange, it's not an out of the ordinary thing. God's people have been a suffering people. Just as our Lord himself suffered and prepared us for the same. Expect reproaches, verse 14. Expect even death. Christ himself died, and in as his disciples, we expect nothing better. That's what he's getting at when he says in verse 13, you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. <clears throat> the principle that Peter is laying out here is this, believers in Christ must endure much trouble in this world. 
And we will arrive at heaven only after much suffering, trouble, trial, affliction. And it is in that sense that we are scarcely saved, verse 18, barely saved, saved with difficulty, saved only as we overcome great obstacles in our way. Now, there's no scarcity concerning the merits of Christ. He's not talking about the the accomplishment of, of salvation. He's not talking about or not casting any any doubt upon the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross for our sins. He's not talking about the efficacy of Christ's work of redemption. Rather, he is talking about our personal experience as we walk through this world, as we live day by day, as we walk in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus through this wicked, Christ-hating, truth-denying world. His message for us is, don't be surprised. You know, many people are sold a false representation of Christianity, that it is an easy road, it's an easy life, It's full of health and wealth. That is not what the Lord Jesus taught, is it? He tells us through his apostle Peter here, don't expect a trouble-free journey to heaven. Our Lord Jesus himself, while he was on this earth, said, enter in at the straight gate. He, he, He represents the Christian life as beginning with a small, narrow gate that opens to a difficult pathway. A narrow, distressing, difficult, pressure-filled way. But at the end of that, he says, is everlasting life. The message that goes out in many pulpits today is, oh, you come in this big, wide gate. Everybody's passing through, and the pathway is wide and, str- and, and, and convenient. It's, it's not windy and curved and difficult. It's, it's a super highway. That's the way Jesus described the pathway to hell. In the words of Paul in the book of Acts, it is through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. That's what Peter's talking about when he says the righteous are scarcely saved. Think of Peter's own experiences that are recorded in the book of Acts. He, along with other of the apostles, was publicly ridiculed, mocked, 
opposed. And then it went to the next level of being hauled into court and threatened. And when they would not stop preaching, it went to the next level. They were beaten. And then when that didn't stop them, Peter, you know, was imprisoned with a death warrant upon his head and the day of execution set. And the only reason it didn't occur then was because the Lord miraculously delivered him from that prison. But later on it did occur. Even as our Lord Jesus prophesied concerning him, he died as a martyr for the faith. And the same could be said of Paul. Look at all of the the troubles and difficulties that he endured. He speaks of them in a couple of passages, all kinds of dangers and perils and difficulties. With great difficulty, these men arrived at heaven. The scarcely here speaks of the suffering which saints, to some degree, all must endure. And for many, it is an extreme suffering, even unto death, pushed to the very limits of what they can bear and only sustained by the hand of God. Pushed to limits which fair weather professors cannot endure. Barely saved. And though on the one hand, there is no doubt whatsoever about the salvation of God's elect. And Peter states that back in chapter 1. They're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Nevertheless, there is great difficulty. One writer says there's no uncertainty of the outcome, but there is difficulty on the road that leads to it. And in that sense, the righteous are barely saved. Just think for a moment, to use our Lord's illustration there of the straight gate and the narrow way, think of the difficulty of entering into salvation. The gospel tells us that we must repent of our sins. Those who have repented of their sins know the difficulty of that. So difficult that left to ourselves, we can't. And we won't. We don't want to give up our sin. We might be willing to give up some of it, but we certainly don't want to give up all of it. And the gospel tells us that we must humble ourselves and agree to be saved by the merits of Christ and not by our own merits. That's the most difficult and humbling thing. To repudiate all of our self-righteousness and to say my my best is not good enough 
and to agree to God's terms of His pure grace. Oh, how difficult true faith is. So difficult that left to ourselves, none of us would have it. But God in His grace gives it to us, gives us the repentance, gives us the faith. It's difficult to enter the narrow gate. And then there's the difficulty of making progress and continuing on in the way of Christ. There are obstacles to overcome. John Bunyan pictures those obstacles in Pilgrim's Progress in allegory form. So many different ones. I don't know there's any that you could mention that he doesn't include in one way or another in that wonderful book. There is the overcoming of indwelling sin and a hostile world and a fierce enemy Satan who sometimes comes as an angel of light and pretends to be our friend. And instead of coming against us with a sword, the world comes to us with a, with a plate full of food and, and a nice soft pillow to lull us to sleep. Continuing in the, in the way, living the Christian life, involves the chastening hand of God when we need it. And the book of Hebrews even calls it being scourged, being whipped, beaten by our loving Heavenly Father for our own good. Oh, the difficulties that we face in coming to Christ and continuing with Christ. So much so that in a way it can be said that we barely arrive at heaven. We barely make it. Thanks only to fresh supplies of the grace of God along the way. Saved so as by fire, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. We arrive, and again, like Pilgrim there in, in his journey, he comes down to the end, and the very last thing before he enters into heaven is the river of death. And that water he finds is right up to here. And he barely makes it across. Barely saved. We reach heaven like a pilgrim who is worn out, beaten up, threadbare, weary, but we arrive in triumph at the end. Because of the grace of God. You know, if Peter tells us anything here, he tells this, he tells us this. Those who are careless, presumptuous professors of Christianity ought to be warned and alarmed 
Why, to them, there's no scarcely about it. (laughs) They're never tested. They meet with no difficulties. They never suffer. They never deny themselves for Christ. They never resist. And they never overcome obstacles. Those who have that kind of of experience, who call themselves Christian, must not be saved at all. Because the righteous are said to be scarcely saved. What disciple ever escaped bearing his cross and following Christ to the death? If anything exposes the fraud of the prosperity gospel, it's a passage like this before us. Oh, how it needs to be rediscovered in in our generation. And so Peter's message to believers is expect to suffer. Beloved, we may yet face the lions. As sure as I'm standing here today, there are people and sometimes they make their voice heard very pointedly that they would like for you if you're a believer in Christ and one who takes the word of God seriously they would like to bring back the lions and they love to say that and don't think for a minute that they would hesitate to do that Oh, we're more civilized than that nowadays. You don't know the heart of man. Those who would butcher babies in their mother's womb would be willing to throw you to a lion. We must expect to suffer and expect to persevere and not to turn back. And as he says in verse 16, not to be ashamed of Christ. But rather rejoice, as he says in verse 13, rejoice for the honor of being identified with a suffering Savior. And trust in God. That's where he ends up there in verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Trust in him. Commit yourself to him for his keeping as a faithful creator, the, the, the author of the new creation in Christ and the redemption of creation in Christ. And you know, it's interesting, the term he uses there in verse 19, the to commit the keeping of your soul to God is a term that was used in those days to describe depositing money with a trusted friend. One historian puts it this way, in ancient days there were no banks and few really safe places in which to deposit money. So before a man went on a journey, he often left his money in the safekeeping of a friend. Such a trust was regarded as one of the most sacred things in life. 
the friend was absolutely bound by all honor to return the money intact. Peter says, just like a man entrusts his money into the hands of a friend, entrust the keeping of your soul into the hands of Christ. And you can trust him. He will keep it. Paul uses the same words and the same picture there when he says, I know whom I've believed, and he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Rest assured, God will keep you. He will keep your soul. But let me hasten on here. There's a message not only for believers here, there is a message for unbelievers. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Verse 17. And where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Verse 18. Peter's argument amounts to this. If the king of heaven chastens his palace servants for their faults, how will he punish his avowed enemies? If the heavenly father deals this severely with his beloved blood-bought children in whom he delights, how will he as judge deal with his sworn enemies? who refuse to bow the knee to him and continue in their sinful rebellion against him. And this is a point that is made in other scriptures as well. (coughs) In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, God is warning in in this particular passage Gentile nations concerning their sins. And he says, Lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. That's Jerusalem. And should ye, that is Gentile cities, be utterly unpunished. He's saying the same thing as Peter says here. If I'm going to punish my own Jerusalem, how much more will I punish Damascus? and Tyre, and Sidon, and those cities. It's what our Lord was saying in Luke 23 when he said, if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? In fact, Peter seems to be quoting here a proverb from Proverbs 11:31 that says, Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth much more the wicked and the sinner. One writer compares it to a father who corrects his children before he begins dealing with his visiting guests in his home for their transgressions. This is a very solemn thing to consider. And the contrast here is between time and eternity. Believers are, or have their difficulties here and now in living the Christian life. 
unbelievers have their difficulties in the greatest measure in the life which is to come. There is the beginning and the end that he speaks of there in verse 17. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? The suffering of saints here and now is a testimony to the lost concerning their sufferings which are yet to come. And bear with me, there's a passage here in Second Thessalonians that says exactly that. It's a principle that we don't think of very often, but let me just read it. He, Paul says to the Thessalonians concerning the persecutions and tribulations that they were enduring, he says, this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. He says, your sufferings here and now are a manifest token of the sufferings that God's enemies will endure later on. And so let me just emphasize this as we draw to a close here. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Both of them end with a question mark. And the question is not directly answered, is it, in either case? Because the answer is obvious. And the answer is too painful and horrible to describe. If believers suffer here and now, how much more will unbelievers suffer hereafter? What will be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? I'll tell you, they will most certainly perish in their torments forever. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? I'll tell you where they will appear. They will appear at the judgment bar of God, who will condemn them into the never-ending flames of the lake of fire. That's where they will appear. They will appear in eternal punishment. This ought to strike fear and terror in the heart of all who hear it, and especially in the heart of all who are outside of Christ. You say, how can this end be avoided? By what Peter calls obeying the gospel of God. And what does the gospel tell us? It tells us to turn from our sin, to repent, and to come to Christ and trust in Him and believe on Him 
and receive from him all that we need to be right with God and to have a happy end after the sufferings of this life. And so I call upon you this day to obey the gospel. Turn from your sin and come to the Savior of sinners.